From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Today, when a doctor becomes a patient. After working as a neurosurgeon for over 40 years, Henry Marsh was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. The cancer led him to reflect on doctor-patient relationships, his own mortality, and why he'd consider the possibility of hastening the end through medically-assisted death. Also, we'll hear from Lizzie Kaplan. In the series Fleischman is in Trouble, she plays a character who's having questions about her marriage, motherhood, and what happened to her youth and potential. Kaplan's first acting job was on the show Freaks and Geeks. She remembers feeling frustrated by the part she was auditioning for in her teens and 20s. There was, you know, the hot, popular girl. There was the nerd. There was, like, the alternative best friend, which was very much my lane for a while. And David B. and Cooley will review the new series, Shrinking. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. Here she is. My guest, Henry Marsh, is a renowned British neurosurgeon who was awarded a CBE by the Queen for services to medicine in the UK and Ukraine. For over 30 years, he's been making frequent trips to Ukraine, performing surgery, teaching, and trying to reform and update the medical system. His work in Ukraine was the subject of an award-winning documentary called The English Surgeon. In England, he was one of the first neurosurgeons to perform certain brain surgeries using only local anesthesia, enabling the patient to remain awake and provide feedback in real time about how the surgery was affecting the brain. Dr. Marsha's new memoir is about retiring from surgery and soon after becoming a patient himself, diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. He shares his reflections on what it was like to walk into the hospital as a member of the, quote, underclass of patients, and no longer a, quote, self-important surgeon. As a patient, he was sometimes haunted by the way he sometimes treated his own patients. His illness led to sobering thoughts about doctor-patient relationships, aging, death, medically-assisted suicide, and how to best live his remaining time. He's in remission now, but there's a 75% chance of the cancer returning in the next five years. His new memoir is called, And Finally, Matters of Life and Death. It begins with a time just 20 months before the cancer diagnosis when he participated as one of the subjects in a study of brain scans of healthy people. He thought his brain scan would look pretty good. He was in despair when it showed his 70-year-old brain was relatively shrunken and withered. Dr. Marsh, welcome back to Fresh Air. I am so glad that you remain in remission. Well, th- thanks, thank you very much. And it's very nice to talk to you again after a few years. You know, you write, rarely did I think about what it would be like when what I witnessed at work every day happened to me. Why didn't you think about that? I know every time I walk into a hospital to visit a friend or, you know, a loved one, I worry about them and I worry what it will be like when I'm in the hospital, because it seems inevitable everyone's going to be hospitalized at some point. Um, So why didn't you think about that? Because I think almost all doctors, you develop this pretty profound separation and detachment from patients. Um, To a certain extent, you have to do that to do the work. If you got deeply emotionally involved with every patient, particularly if you do 
very dangerous surgery as I did, you, you wouldn't be able to do it. And also, you learn right from the get-go that the most frightening thing for a patient is a frightened doctor. And you often are anxious because it's the nature of the work. And you therefore have to pretend and deceive to a certain extent to radiate confidence and certainty when actually inwardly you don't feel that. And of course, the best way of deceiving other people is to deceive yourself. So I think many doctors live in this sort of limbo of, <laughs> of you know, us and them. Illness happens to patients, not to doctors. Anecdotally, I'm told that many doctors present with their cancers very late, as I did. And I denied, at a very deep, almost unconscious level, I denied my symptoms for months, if not for years. Why did you deny them? I mean, you had problematic symptoms like increased urgency and frequency of urination, difficult flow, but but so many older men have that, guys. Their prostate gets enlarged. Yes, you ought to get it investigated to exclude cancer. And a combination of fear and reluctance to sort of cross over to the other side of the road and become a patient myself, men turned a blind eye to it. I mean, they, a lot of people do that with all sorts of things. You know, it's a sort of, his, in medical languages, called hysterical dissociation or cognitive dissonance. You know it's a serious problem, but part of you dismisses it. You had to break the news to many patients that they had tumors or cancers of some sort. How did the doctors break the news to you that you had advanced prostate cancer? Well, it was, it was over the phone by a colleague of mine, whom I know quite well, and he just said, your PSA is 130. <laughs> I'm referring you to an oncologist. So if you're in the 130s in your PSA, what's considered normal? Oh, less than one. <laughs> and most men with cancer will have one of 20 or 30, something like that. So mine is sky high. And then I saw an oncologist, but I was very struck, as I say in the book, I felt completely tongue-tied, and partly because I was terribly reluctant to sort of throw my weight around and say, he must have known who I was. You know, I'm a very famous surgeon, I'm a well-known writer. So instead, I went to the other extreme of really saying very little, other than sort of blurting out, like, you know, more or less, how long have I got? And of course, he doesn't know. No doctor knows. It's all about probabilities. So most of the, most of the information I learned for myself by Googling it, as we all do, which, of course, is a very frightening experience. <laughs> well, you write that you gave your doctors mixed messages. You told them you want to know the truth, but you also want to be given hope. Yes, I, I think so. I think, I think I, was, I was very confused. I mean, I had two surprises when I was diagnosed with cancer. I wasn't particularly surprised at what it was like to be a patient. I'd been a patient before. My wife is an anthropologist and has Crohn's disease and has often been in hospital She's a trained observer of people, <laughs> and, and you know, she made it clear to me, which I hadn't really appreciated until I met her. We've been together 24 years. You know, the last thing you get in hospital is peace, rest, or quiet. And there are many similarities between being in hospital and being in prison. <laughs> and the other point was my son, when he was three months old 40 years ago, almost died from a brain tumor. He was saved by a wonderful surgeon. So I had some personal experience. But what did surprise me was first the, the fact I was so shocked <laughs> that I had cancer, which is ridiculous. You know, I'd been dealing with patients with cancer all my life. And secondly, when I went through a very difficult period for the first few weeks and I didn't know if I had widespread disease or not, 
And I suddenly found I was remembering all sorts of patients I'd completely forgotten. It was all my patients came back as ghosts. They weren't exactly accusatory. But I suddenly felt much less certain about how I'd been, how I'd handled patients, how I'd spoken to them. I hope I wasn't too bad, but I was much less self-assured now that I was a patient myself. You spent time after you were diagnosed going to neurosurgery meetings, I suppose, to consult. Um, and you write that you were divided between being a doctor and being a patient. Can you describe both points of view at those meetings that you were experiencing in your mind? Well, when, you, when, you, when you're as a doctor, you're not emotionally engaged in any way. You look at brain scans, you hear terrible, tragic stories, and it doesn't actually, you feel nothing really on the whole. You're totally detached. Um, but what I found was, when I saw was, was at some teaching meetings and they would see scans of a man with prostate cancer which had spread to the spine and was causing paralysis. You know, I'd feel a sort of cold clutch of fear at my heart, rather like you saying when you go into a hospital, you, it fills you with anxiety. You know, I'd never felt anxious going into hospitals before because I was detached, I was a doctor. Illness happens to patients, not to doctors. And I, now it's sort of emotionally I'd learned otherwise. So you were diagnosed at the age of 70 and you felt your life was kind of complete. Does that mean you were willing to have it end? In a sense, yes. I mean, we all want to go on living. You know, the wish to go on living is very, very deep. I have a loving family. I have four grandchildren I dote on. I'm very busy. I'm still lecturing and teaching. I have a workshop. I'm making things all the time. So there are lots of things I want to go on doing. So I'd like to have a future. But I, I felt very strongly as the diagnosis sunk in. But I'd really been very lucky. You know, I'd reached 70. I had a really exciting life. There were many things I was slightly ashamed of and regretted. But I really, the word complete, I like the word complete. Obviously, for my wife's sake, for my family's sake, they want me to live longer, and I want to live longer. But purely for myself, I think how lucky I've been and how often approaching the end of your life can be difficult if there are sort of lots of unresolved problems or difficult relationships which haven't been sorted out. Um, so in that sense, I'm ready to die. Obviously, I don't want to. Not yet. <laughs> but, but I'm kind of reconciled to it. We're listening to Terry's interview with retired British neurosurgeon Henry Marsh. His new memoir is called And Finally, Matters of Life and Death. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and David B. and Cooley will review the new series Shrinking, starring Jason Siegel as a therapist and Harrison Ford as his mentor. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with retired British neurosurgeon Henry Marsh. His new memoir, And Finally, Matters of Life and Death, is about the experience of being the patient, not the surgeon, after he was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. He shares his reflections on doctor-patient relationships, aging, death, medically-assisted suicide, and how to best live his remaining time. After the diagnosis, you experienced wave after wave of anxiety and despair. In the initial stages, yes. Yeah, and, and there was a period where you wanted to just get it over with and die because you were afraid of dying. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, I know, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, but, but was it fear of dying or fear of suffering before dying? It's fear of suffering before dying and us, you know, lingering on, being in a 
hospital bed, and I hate hospitals, always have done, and they're horrible places, even though I spent most of my life working in them. Um, no, it's death itself it holds no fears for me at all, as far as I, I love the famous 18th century philosopher David Hume, who on his deathbed was asking, aren't you terribly worried about what will happen after death? And he said, no, I'm no more worried about not existing after death than I'm worried about not existing before I was born. And that is my view about death. I don't believe in an afterlife. But I know, as a doctor, that dying can be very unpleasant. I'm a fiercely independent person. I, I, hate, I don't like being out of control. I, I don't like being dependent upon other people. I will not like, you know, being disabled and withering away with terminal illness. I might accept it, you know, I don't know. You never know until it happens to you. And I know from both family and friends and patients it's amazing what one can come to accept when the, you know, your earlier self would throw up his or her hands in horror. So I don't know. But I would like the option of assisted dying if my end looks like it would be rather unpleasant. Well, you actually have a, basically a suicide go bag with medication in it. Yes, I do. I can do, I, can yes. I ask what's in that bag, what the medication is? It's opiates, which I obtained entirely legally, and I'm not going to say how. But my worry is they might not work or I might vomit them up, which is why in the book I say I have spoken to a medical friend and he has promised to provide backup if necessary. Obviously, both of us very much hope it won't be necessary. Would that be legal if your doctor friend helped you? No, it would be totally illegal. That would be classed as murder. Yeah, what, what is the law in England about medical... The law yeah. in England is it is um, murder to help somebody kill themselves. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, it's ridiculous, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, it's suicide is not illegal, so you have to provide some pretty good reasons why it is illegal to help somebody do something which is not illegal, you know, which is perfectly legal. And opinion polls in Britain always show a huge majority, 70-80%, want the law to be changed. But there's a very impassioned, dare I say it, fanatical group, mainly of palliative care doctors, who are deeply opposed to it, and they've got the ear of members of parliament. They argue that assisted dying will lead to coercion, or what they call vulnerable people, you know, old, lonely people, will be sort of somehow bullied by greedy relatives or cruel doctors and nurses to asking for help in killing themselves. But there's no evidence this is happening in the many countries where assisted dying is possible because you have lots of legal safeguards. It's not suicide on request. You have to make, you know, you can make the safeguards as strong as you like, but you have to apply more than once in writing with a delay. You have to be seen by independent doctors who will make sure you're not being coerced or you're not clinically depressed. So it's, it's only a very small number of people who opt for it. Um, but it does seem to work reasonably well without terrible problems in countries where it's legal. And there's no question of the fact, even despite good palliative care, although some palliative care doctors deny this, dying can be very unpleasant, both not so much physically as the loss of dignity and autonomy, which is the prospect that troubles me. Through your concerns about getting older and the possibility of dying sooner than you'd like because of the prostate cancer, you had no wish to be young again. Why not? No, I don't. I was such a complete twit 
um, prune, whatever you <laughs> know, whatever, whatever the American word would be. Um, I was totally out of control. I didn't understand my emotions. I'm a very emotional person. And I think many people, as we get older, we learn a lot. We calm down a bit. Um, and I'm really... I've been on hormone therapy, which is chemical castration by another name. It's bearable, but unpleasant. I've now stopped it. I may have to go back on it. <laughs> I don't want to. But what I hadn't realized really, I mean, depression and fatigue are common side effects. But you kind of get used to it. I, I wasn't used to the fatigue and the muscle weakness. You lose muscle when you haven't got testosterone. But I was actually pretty, pretty fed up. And I thought that was just because I was unhappy about having cancer. But there's been this huge change in my mood <laughs> since, since I assume my testosterone levels are on the way up. And I never looked. I'm basically a very anxious, driven person, was always trying to achieve, worrying about the future. And for the last few weeks, I've been in this wonderful Buddhist, <laughs> Zen-like state. I know I've got this PSA test in three weeks' time, which may very well be bad news, but I don't mind. I think, well, that's three weeks away, you know. The future doesn't exist yet. And this is not denial. This is just, to my complete surprise, learning to live in the present and make the most of it. So at the moment, I'm really very, very happy to be alive. But that's really only possible because I've had a very complete life and I have a very close and loving family. And those are the things that matter in life. About 20 months before your cancer diagnosis, you got a brain scan, participating in a study of the brain scans of normal people, um, you know, people who didn't have, you know, uh, uh, dementia or, any, or a brain tumor or anything like that. Um, so you're a neurosurgeon. You looked at your own brain scan afterwards. Compare what you were expecting to see to what you actually saw when you read your own scan. I, I was horrified. <laughs> I thought somehow naively it would show my brain was unmarked by age. But in fact, it was showed marked age-related changes. It shrunk quite a lot. There was evidence of what's called white, white matter hyperintensities. They had blood vessel miniature strokes in parts in the white matter, the bits that connect the brain together. And although I felt mentally absolutely fine, um, and as far as I could tell, I was still fairly smart. So it was, a, it was a huge shock. This is before I was diagnosed with cancer, as you said, and I'd wanted to write another book, but I'm going to do it from a slightly different angle by starting with my own brain, my own brain scan. But it kind of, you know, it was the biter bit, and it was the beginning of my having to accept I was getting old, accept I was becoming more like a patient than a doctor, but I wasn't immune to the decay and aging and illnesses I've been seeing in my patients for the previous 40 years. So it was actually terribly frightening looking at the scan. You know, it was crossing a threshold, and I've never dared to look at it again. <laughs> it was just too upsetting. In retrospect, it probably wasn't that big a deal. It probably, if I'd seen that scan at work, I'd have said, well, that's a typical... 70-year-old brain scan. But that was me, you know? And it was the beginning of the process, which then became much more violent when I was diagnosed with cancer. Once you saw the brain scan and saw, like, the, the degeneration that was taking place, did you feel 
different about your own mental performance? No, not really. I mean, I'm becoming a little bit more with my memory, not as good as it was, but that's all normal as we get old. You know, I forget names. Uh, I don't think I'm dementing yet. But as many people my age, I'm very frightened about dementia. My father died from Alzheimer's at the age of 96. So many of my friends have had elderly parents who demented. It's, it's terrible and tragic to see people withering away. Um, and I, I dread that happening to me. In my more sardonic moments, I say I regard my prostate cancer as a vaccination against Alzheimer's. Oh, because you'll die too soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the plan. Yeah. Die, die before That's... the Alzheimer's sets yes. in. Yes, um, yeah. is, is your fear of dementia, I'm watching your father deal with dementia, is that one of the reasons why you have um, a, a kit with medicine that could allow you to hasten your own death? Yes, it is. But assisted dying doesn't solve the dementia problem because you have to have mental capacity in in jurisdictions where assisted dying is allowed. You have, and if you're demented, you don't have mental capacity. You may be in the early stages of a disease you can, but the idea that assisted dying will somehow be used to kill off swarms of demented old people is just not true. It's not possible. It won't happen. Do you th- think that you would want to uh, hasten your death in the early stages of Alzheimer's? Yes, if I've been if I've been certainly diagnosed with it, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But having said that, it happens. I don't know, but the man I am at the moment, if I knew I was definitely dementing, I would not want to inflict that on my family. You know, you've talked about becoming more zen at this stage in your life and living in the moment and not trying to worry about the future. Yeah, it's wonderful. I don't know how long it will last. Yeah, well, you say in your book, and why think about the future? Because you know, at a certain age, the future, especially if you have, you know, cancer, that the future, you know, isn't going to be. It's not going to be good. Yeah, it's it's going to be decline. Uh, Even if not in the near future, in the distant future. So why dwell on that? So you've probably thought a lot about how you want to spend your remaining time. What are your thoughts about that? How, how, are you, how are you thinking differently about your life now? I want to see as much as I can of my children and grandchildren. Um, I, I'm not going to write any more books for adults, but if there's one chapter, a slightly wacky chapter in my new book, where I discuss the fairy stories I told my granddaughters on FaceTime during the pandemic when I couldn't see them. This is this invented magical world I created. Um, and I wonder, I'm, right, I'm starting to write those up. Not really with a view to publication, but just as a sort of family heirloom. And lots of people are encouraging me to do that. And I try to do the illustrations myself as well. Like I'm a sort of cartoon artist of sorts. So that's a nice thing to do. I've got a workshop. I'm always making things. I've just finished, I spent two years making a very grand, complicated doll's house for my third granddaughter. Um, and my, my, I'm very happily married to my wife, Kate, who lives in Oxford. I divide my time between Oxford and London. So I've got plenty of things to do, and I'm physically well at the moment. I keep fit, I run and exercise and things like that. So at the moment, I feel I'm very lucky. Dr. Marsh, thank you again for coming back to our show, and um, I want to wish you continued remission and good health. Thank you very much. 
Henry Marsh's new memoir is called And Finally, Matters of Life and Death. He spoke with Terry Gross. A new comedy series streaming on Apple TV Plus called Shrinking stars Jason Siegel from How I Met Your Mother as a therapist trying to deal with people's problems and issues, including his own. The co-stars of Shrinking include Harrison Ford, who recently began starring in his first series for television, the period Western drama 1923 on Paramount+. Our TV critic David Biancooley has this review. The newest Apple TV Plus comedy series, Shrinking, has a lot in common with Ted Lasso, another series from that same streaming service. Two creators of Shrinking came from there. Bill Lawrence, who also created Scrubs, was a Ted Lasso writer and producer. So was Brett Goldstein, who also co-starred in Ted Lasso and stole the show playing aging, grumpy soccer player Roy Kent. The third creator of Shrinking and its central star is Jason Siegel of How I Met Your Mother. He plays Jimmy, a therapist who's been in a tailspin since his wife died. He's been neglecting his teen daughter Alice, played by Lucita Maxwell, and basically relying on his next-door neighbor Liz, played by Krista Miller, to raise her. Basically, he's just going through the motions and even yawns while listening to his therapy patients. Until one day he snaps and decides to say what he really thinks and to give some very direct advice. The patient, Grace, is played by Heidi Gardner from Saturday Night Live, and she's understandably confused. He loves me. Enough. Grace, we've been doing this for two years. Two years of your life. I have never seen a guy tell a woman that she is dumb and lucky she has great and thought to myself, wow, they must really be in love. And he keeps telling me how great he is. Well, I saw him. He's not that great. His muscles are too big. His shirts are too tight. Nobody likes that. It's gross. And what's the word? What's that word? What's the word? I don't know. What word are you talking about? Fugly. He's fugly. He's a fugly, fugly man. Fugly inside and out. I am sorry. I don't know what's happening because I was talking and... Grace, your husband is emotionally abusive. He's not working on it. He doesn't intend to. He's made you think it's all you deserve. It's not. Just leave him. It's not that easy. It is that easy. You don't have any kids. Just go, go to your sister's in Vancouver. Instead of feeling that he's hit a new low, Jimmy suspects he might have stumbled on a whole new way to treat patients. He runs it by his two colleagues at the therapy center, who have polar opposite reactions. Paul, his friend and mentor, played by Harrison Ford, is all deadpan disapproval. But Gabby, played by the much younger Jessica Williams, sees some potential. Hey. Hey, kid. How you doing? I'm normal, you know. It's a normal day, normal day. Doing it, doing it normal style. Hey, you know what I was thinking, Paul? Is it about how you're just doing it normal style? What, what are you thinking? You guys ever get so mad at your patients that all of a sudden you just, well, shake them? Well, we don't shake them. No, I know, I know, I, I, I'm rooting for them. I am, I'm like, come on, you up person. You can change, and then they just never do. Compassion fatigue. We all hit those walls. Yeah. You ask questions, you listen, you stay non-judgmental, and you don't make that face. Sorry. It's just, look, we know what they should do. You know why? Because it's pretty simple. I get sad when I do this thing. Maybe don't do that thing. We know the answer. 
Don't you ever want to just, just make them do it? Great idea. We just rob them of their autonomy, any chance they have to help themselves, right? And we become what? Psychological vigilantes? <laughs> oh my God. I'm like sensing the sarcasm, but that sounds kind of badass. The setup seems to suggest a light look at an alternative therapy approach, with patients providing easy, reliable laughs the way they did on the Bob Newhart show. But shrinking has more on its mind and wants to treat its characters and their interactions more seriously. Jason Siegel's Jimmy has some significant father-daughter issues to confront, and so does Harrison Ford's Paul. His daughter, played by Lily Rabe, doesn't know her dad has been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and he doesn't want to tell her. One of Jimmy's patients, played by Luke Tenney, is an Army veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder. And the patients, like each of the therapists, goes through ups and downs and times when they're being less than honest, even with themselves. There's a lot of savvy sitcom experience on display here, and all the actors are used well. Michael Urie from Ugly Betty, Ted McGinley from Happy Days and Married with Children, Krista Miller from Scrubs, Wendy Malick from Just Shoot Me, they all create characters who seem real enough that you begin not only rooting for them, but caring about them. And Harrison Ford, with his quiet weariness and his startling unpredictability, gives the best performance of all. In one later episode, his reaction to a preening peacock made me laugh louder and more unexpectedly than I have in years. I've seen nine of the ten episodes of Shrinking from this season, and they kept surprising me. Characters didn't always act how I expected them to, and though most of the scenes were funny, some of them snuck up on me and made me suddenly sad or emotional. Ted Lasso did that to me, too. The characters in Shrinking will grow on you, while they're growing themselves. Jimmy's approach to therapy may not be for everyone, but Shrinking, as a piece of TV entertainment, I can prescribe without reservations. David Bianculli is professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed the new comedy series Shrinking, starring Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford on Apple TV+. Coming up, we hear from actor Lizzie Kaplan, In the series Fleischman is in Trouble, she plays a character who's having questions about her marriage, motherhood, and her career. This is Fresh Air Weekend. The series Fleischman is in Trouble stars our guest, Lizzie Kaplan, along with Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes. It was adapted for TV by writer Taffy Brodesser-Ackner from her novel of the same name. The complete series is now streaming on Hulu. Lizzie Kaplan spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. When you first start watching Fleischman is in Trouble, the show is mostly about Toby Fleischman, played by Jesse Eisenberg. Toby is a divorced doctor and dad living on the Upper East Side of New York City. He's starting to date with limited success and figuring out how to co-parent his two kids. One morning, his successful ex-wife, played by Claire Danes, is set to pick up their kids from his apartment, but she doesn't show so he has to figure out where she is and, in general, what went wrong with his life. The show is narrated by Toby's old college friend Libby, played by my guest Lizzie Kaplan. Libby's also struggling, and as the show goes on, it shifts to focus more on her. She's wondering about her marriage, motherhood, her career, a lack thereof, and what happened to her youth and potential. Lately, I couldn't stop thinking about Toby on his dates. 
coming home alone, coming home with someone. I didn't have a thing for him, and I didn't want to be divorced. It's that Toby's life was no longer predictable. They had somehow had the sense of possibility returned to him. I'd been feeling so old. Here was Toby, exact same age, just realizing how young he was. I couldn't believe that it was possible for two people to be the same age and feel so different. Which one of us was right? Which is a way of saying that I was going through something too right then, but I couldn't name it yet. Lizzie Kaplan is an actor known for her roles in comedy and drama. Her first acting job ever was in the critically acclaimed but short-lived TV show Freaks and Geeks. Her breakout role was playing Janice in the 2004 movie Mean Girls. Her other films include Hot Tub Time Machine, Bachelorette, and Now You See Me Too. And her other TV shows include her Emmy-nominated role in Masters of Sex, Cult Favorite Party Down, and a forthcoming miniseries that's a reboot of the 80s film Fatal Attraction. Lizzie Kaplan, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. It's great to be here. The series starts with Toby Fleshman, the dad, and his side of the divorce, and this mystery about where his ex-wife Rachel is. But then it becomes as much about the women of the story, if not more, like Rachel and what happened to her and your character, Libby. And it's about their struggles as women, as workers, as mothers. It's almost, it's not a bait and switch, but it's a refocus. Um, And I think that's like a great surprise of the series. Was that something that you um, were drawn to? Yes. Um, one of the main ideas behind both the book and the show comes from Taffy's own personal experience as a female writer at men's magazines, for the most part. We should say that Taffy Broadhurst Ackner is the writer of the novel Fleischman and is in trouble, and she also wrote the show. Yes. And she discovered, and Libby discovers in our story, that people don't seem to care about her stories if they're written about a woman. They care about them if they're written about a man. And so Taffy manages to kind of Trojan horse the real story into this, you know, you you think that you're watching this story about a man getting divorced, figuring it out, dating apps, and you're really not watching that story at all. You have to wait until episode seven until you see the Rachel Fleischman side of the story. And then you have to wait till episode eight to kind of get the whole picture, which was that this entire thing was really an exercise in Libby's mind. And it's a sad truth that I think is part of the whole thing, which is, yeah, I mean, I don't know if this show would have been watched by as many people if it was about a woman going through horrific postpartum depression and anxiety and another woman having sort of a slower burn midlife crisis like i i think that immediately turns off a lot of male viewers and honestly a lot of female viewers as well i'm interested in your voice and the fact that your character is the narrator and your voice is throughout the whole series. You're everywhere. Yes. <laughs> your presence is yeah. there. Um, how did you feel about that being the voice throughout? I think I read that you as an actor, you don't like to watch your stuff as much after. But what about your voice? You have such a distinctive one. I do have a very distinctive voice. And I think most people, I mean, 
you know, you listen to your voice all the time. It's jarring. Uh, it's less jarring to just hear my voice than to have to hear my voice and watch my face as the voice is coming out of my face. I really usually don't like doing that, but I did do it with Fleischmann. I did watch it, and I'm glad I did. I think part of it was curiosity to see if it would work, this really heavy use of voiceover, which is something people usually shy away from, and for good reason. It can be used as a narrative crutch a lot of times. It can be lazy. Uh, in this case, it was so deliberate. You don't really realize how it's deliberate until towards the end of the series. You had just become a mom before filming began um, in 2021. One of the great things about the series that it complicates this idea of motherhood is like it's realistic about it. It deals with postpartum depression, the extreme pressures of motherhood, the fact that sometimes, you know, a mother cannot be just focused on their kids, you know, and um, I appreciated the look at motherhood not being natural or idealized. Oh, me too. And it was the perfect, I mean, for so many reasons, it was just a lucky break to get to do this show at the dawn of my own motherhood because the curtain was being ripped away on a daily basis for me, especially in those first three months, as I think it is for many new mothers. I mean, I didn't go into it. I think this is another benefit of being a bit older. I didn't go into it thinking it was going to be like this completely blissed out experience 24 hours a day. But this is what we're fed as new mothers, that it needs to feel a certain way. And that way is nothing but overwhelmingly positive and it's the best thing you've ever done in your life at every moment and if it's not you're doing it wrong and you need to feel bad about that definitely another thing that libby is struggling with is being a female writer at a men's magazine being a woman who mostly works with men when the writing is about quote unquote masculine or dude subjects like cover stories about climbing mountains and extreme eating, like eating animal hearts. Um, and she, as a writer, she's frustrated because she isn't getting the same kinds of assignments. She isn't getting the same career advancement as her male counterparts, some of them even younger. And I want to play a scene from this show. Um, here, Libby has been at the magazine for 15 years, and she goes to a party for this senior reporter, like this gonzo journalist type guy who's being celebrated. And she feels like She's done. She can't do it anymore. So she's back home. She's talking to her husband, played by Josh Radner. I'm lost. I don't know what I'm doing. Why? What happened? I was just... I was rereading The Heart is a Lonely Dinner. I just... I don't know. I always thought, like, I... If I write good stories, if I prove myself... Then one day, they're going to send me to the top of the mountain to eat the still-beating heart of the ox. And I'll know the secret to life. You'll get there. You will. I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't. I'm not even close. Oh, God. I can't believe I'm saying this, but... I think I have to leave. Listen, come here. Come here. Listen... Those guys who embody the ethic of the magazine, they're blowhards. They come to you when they want a good story without the pages soaked no. in blood. They come to me when they want a story 
that's filed on time. They do. I want to soak my pages in blood. You know, I want people to read my stories and cry and rend their garments. They will. They don't. They don't. They don't. God. I just feel so stupid. I was never in the game. You could be a great writer at a men's magazine, but no matter how hard you work, if you're a woman, you can't be a man. It's like, I don't even feel like anybody reads anything I write unless it's about a man. That's a scene from the series Fleischman is in Trouble. Now, after this, she decides to quit and write a novel, but then she struggles to write that novel, and that's sort of where she gets stuck. But I was wondering if you've ever felt the way that Libby does here, that way as an actor in your work, that kind of frustration of being passed over or left behind. Yes, I think that's sort of part and parcel of the gig. But I do remember when I was younger especially when I was younger, I, I, I don't really feel this way anymore. Um, I, I feel like roles for women, especially in television, uh, they just get more interesting. Uh, they have for me as I've gotten older. Um, but I know that is certainly not something that everybody feels. Uh, I, I know that I'm lucky to feel that way. Um, but I definitely remember when I was younger and, and auditioning for like a lot of this, you know, high school stuff or some early 20s stuff. And it's just the male roles were always better. They always got to do the more fun stuff. And you were sort of relegated to, you know, a few different archetypes as a girl, especially back then. Um, it, it has changed a lot. I see in like a lot of the teen shows now there is a shift. Um, but there was, you know, the hot popular girl, there was the nerd, there was like the alternative best friend, which was very much my lane for a while. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate to be in some projects that kind of skewered the archetypal nature of those things. But for the most part, the things I auditioned for certainly, I remember asking many times when I was younger, like, can I audition for the guy part? Can they, is there any way? There's no reason why he has to be, this character has to be a guy. It can be a, a girl. And I certainly had like nowhere near enough clout in the business for anybody to do anything other than laugh at that request. Now, you were born in Los Angeles and you you grew up there, but you didn't think you would be an actor early on. I think people who don't live in L.A. would think that everybody who lives there is exposed to acting, but you weren't? I wasn't. I think that is a, the general misconception about growing up in L.A. without any, you know, if your parents are not in the industry. Uh, it's a very normal upbringing. The only difference is that you see a lot of famous people and it doesn't really phase you as a kid to see celebrities. That's just like part of living in LA. But very few of my friends from growing up, I mean, none, of, none of whom had parents or family members in the industry, I mean, nobody became an actor. Nobody went into Hollywood. Like may, maybe a couple peripheral friends, but for the most part... It just wasn't the path, which feels so nuts because I'm actually jealous of that version of an of an L.A. upbringing, um, which has 
is now no longer an option for hmm. my son, let's say. He's now the child of actors. And so his version of L.A. will always be different than my childhood in L.A. My dad was a lawyer. My mom was a teacher and then a political aide. And I never thought about being an actress, ever. Uh, I went to a performing arts high school, but I went for the piano. And that's where I like truly stumbled onto acting, uh, something that I never thought about. If this is too personal, let me know. Um, your mom passed away when you were young. And I was wondering if you're interested in acting early enough that she knew that that was something that you were interested in. Uh, no, it's not too personal. And no, my mother had, uh, she passed away when I was 13 and I didn't start thinking about being an actress until I was 15. And I do remember with the intensity of a angsty 15-year-old feeling like, I don't know what to do with these feelings. I had no idea how to process my mother's death. It took me many, many years. But I knew that it gave me a darkness that in my mind was a requirement for being an actor or the kind of actor I wanted to be. I needed to have this like inner pain in order to do it. Um, I remember going to an acting class and auditing it when I was 16 years old. And it was in Hollywood, and it was a pretty prestigious acting class, and it was full, I mean, there was a hundred people in it, and it went really late till, you know, 1 a.m. And I stayed there, and I watched it the whole time, and then I met with the teacher afterwards to see if I could join the class. And she looked at me and asked me how old I was, and I said I was 16, and she said, you haven't had any life experience, you can't be in this class, and booted me out. And that moment... It's so crystallized in my brain because I remember feeling like, oh, no, 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 this is the community that's supposed to see these things in me, that I do, I do have the depth that is required to be in this class, but you just see some dumb little teenager who hasn't been through anything, when the reality was I had been through what is still the most monumental tragedy of my life. Your first role was on Freaks and Geeks, which was a short-lived but critically acclaimed TV show that was on from 1999 to 2000 by Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, and it launched a lot of actors' careers. What was it like having that be your first role? Little did I know that critically acclaimed and short-lived would describe the vast majority <laughs> of my future projects. It was, the experience itself was very overwhelming and just like stepping into this completely different universe that I, I had no idea about it. I mean, I grew up in LA, but I had never been on a movie set before. I didn't know how any of it worked. I didn't know about, you know, marks on the ground and coverage and close-ups and how long everything was going to take and hair and makeup and how many outfits I'd have to try on for this one line that I was going to say. I remember being in my tiny trailers, they call them honey wagons, the trailers that have like, I don't know, six or seven little compartments in it. We all start out in the honey wagon. And 
just looking in the mirror for hours, just reciting this one line over and over and over and over again and being terrified and just in love with the idea of this moving village with these hundreds of people all working towards this goal together, but also feeling, again, completely overwhelmed, very shy, uh, not bonding in any way with any of my castmates or anybody. Uh, and I know that I look back at that experience and I am, it was just honestly pure luck to end up on a show that ended up being so loved and so respected for so many years because I really did audition for all kinds of nonsense and just that was the first place that picked me. But it wasn't a fun experience for me. It was mostly just scary. Lizzie Kaplan, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. Lizzie Kaplan spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Kaplan stars in the limited series Fleischman is in Trouble. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. Thank you.